God, we thank you for today. Uh, we thank you for um, the gift of another day. God, we thank you that your word is clear-eyed in the way that it views the world, and the way that it views us, and the way that it reveals you and your character to us. God, we are thankful for the opportunity to come and hear your word proclaimed. God, I pray for us as we gather here today that you would bless and keep us. God, that as we think through our lives right now, as we enter into these into this room, into this space. The things that are difficult in our lives, the ways in which we experience opposition um, to you and the things of you, Father, that um, you would provide relief from those things. God, that you would provide peace in the midst of those things. God, that you would remind us of the words that were just read. And that today, Father, as we examine your word in Nehemiah, that truly it would be a gift to us, that it would encourage us and challenge us, convict us, um, and train us in godliness. Father, we acknowledge that um, apart from you, we have no good. God, we need you desperately. God, I pray that as we are here today, that we would feel deeply the great love that you have demonstrated in your gospel. Um, Out of your love, you did not spare your only son, but you gave him up for us. And so you're trustworthy. Be with us, Father. Allow this to be the, to the glory of your name, and it's your name that we pray. Amen. Good morning. Well, we got to get something out of the way. That was the most amazing rendition of the doxology. It's, it's incredible. I don't know what's better, the fact that Clayton played it or Megan's response to what, what Clayton was playing, and then the passage that she had to read thereafter, which is all about suffering persecution. So it's, we're, it's a wild day today. Like We're all over the place. Okay, so uh, welcome. I'm Kyle Fisher. I'm on staff here as the Associate Pastor of Men at White Rock Fellowship. Uh, I want to welcome you this morning. Our text today is Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 9 through 20. Uh, If you want to turn there, Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 9 through 20. And to kind of give us a running start, I want you to to imagine back to whenever you were growing up and you're hungry late at night. What would you do? You would walk over to your parents' fridge. You would open it up, and you would see that there was absolutely nothing to eat. Mom, there's nothing to eat. Uh, Never mind the fact that there were like three or four iterations of like leftovers that you had to like push aside to see that there was nothing to eat. And never mind the fact that there was actually like peanut butter and jelly, you know, on hand. There's nothing to eat, mom, right? Or so you thought until you went off to college or joined the workforce and got your own apartment or went off to, in my case, to seminary. And you opened up the fridge on your, you know, your vast seminary uh, income. And there was uh, a single Brita filter, that contained all of the sustenance uh, that you needed. And in comparison, you begin to realize that when your parents said, actually, hey, you know, there's actually some food in there, and it's actually kind of hard to get the food into the fridge for you. Uh, in comparison to your parents' fridge, your, I mean, their fridge, to be, all, you know, to be totally honest, was like the land of Canaan. There's flowing with milk and honey, frozen pizza. It was a gift, truly, from the Lord. And yours, on the other hand, was like wandering in the wilderness, minus the manna and the quail. Because once again, the only thing that you could own was actually like a Brita filter. And I, why you spent your money on something you can't eat, I don't, I don't understand. Anyways, so why bring that up? Because um, it's one thing to be told that you're going to go through a difficult time. It's a whole other thing to go through it, right? And if you're a good parent, one of the things that you want to do in order to prepare your children for um, just life in general. I remember telling my mom uh, after going to college, calling her up and saying, life is like expensive. Like, what is this? Right? 
If you, if you want to prepare your children, one of the ways that you show them love is you let them know that hard times are coming. And, and while they will never actually feel it until they get into the midst of it, you have prepared them well for when those difficult times come. Well, Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 9 through 20 is going to help prepare us for difficult times. Now, uh, some of us need preparation because we're not currently going through it, but some of us are already in the middle of, of difficult times. And what I think God through his word is going to reveal to us today is he's going to reveal a reality. He's going to reveal to us a response, a remembrance, and a call to action. Now, Nehemiah uh, is a book that we've been in for the last two weeks, and one of the things, one of the themes that Jeff introduced two weeks ago was this idea that Nehemiah uh, is a great example of how our own individual micro stories fit into God's macro story, where he is weaving together all peoples, times, and places for his redemptive purposes for his glory. And so Nehemiah, he's just one small part of that story. Well, in many ways, that, that forms a sort of template or a type for us. How do we understand our stories as they relate to God's greater story, especially in the difficult? How do we understand our stories as they relate to God's story, especially in the midst of difficulty? Let's turn to the text, Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 9 through 20. It's quite a bit of text, so we're going to try and fly through it really quickly. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river, and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. But when Sinbalat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So I went to Jerusalem and was there for three days. And I arose in the night, I and a few men with me. And I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me, but the one on which I rode. I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate. Lots of good material downstairs to the middle schoolers this morning right there. <laughs> Great material. And I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had, been, that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall, and I turned back and entered by the valley gate, and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, and I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. Then I said to them, you see the trouble that we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the walls of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, what is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper and we his servants will arise and build, but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. So there's our text for today. It's not as uh, easily engaging as, say, like a Psalm 8 or a Psalm 1, right? Lots of talk gates, dung gates. It's, that's bizarre, right? Dragon whales, and, you know, all this, all this fun stuff. So there are a few things I want to note before we, we, we look at the particulars of the text. So Nehemiah takes place in what is known as the post-exilic period. Now, it's exactly what its name suggests. It's post-exile, meaning that at some point, in, at two points in Israel's past, 
um, there had been a couple of different exiles. So the first exile occurred with respect to the northern kingdom. Now, in biblical history, uh, Israel used to be united, but after Solomon's rule, they had a civil war, and there was a northern kingdom made up of ten tribes, southern kingdom made up of two tribes. Now, the northern kingdom never had a good king. They were always worshiping false idols from the jump. Um, and because of that, after hundreds and hundreds of years of idolatry and not loving their neighbor as they should, so on and so forth, they were eventually uh, disciplined by the Lord through the Assyrians. The Assyrians conquered them, carried them off into exile around the year of 721 BC. That's the first exile and deportation. Now, with Judah, they actually had a handful of decent kings, but they weren't great overall. And so about 150, 150 years later, five uh, 86 or so BC, um, they were deported as well, but this time not by the Assyrians, by the Babylonians. And so when they get, whenever Nehemiah arrives on the scene, this is after both of these exiles and deportations, they've been brought back into the land. In fact, that's Nehemiah's whole thing. His job is to rebuild the wall. Um, just like previously in Ezra, their job under Zerubbabel was to rebuild the temple. He was tasked by God with rebuilding the wall, and that's how he fit into God's uh, broader story. And so as we engage today and as we, as we examine the text, that's sort of the context in which we find ourselves. Nehemiah has finally made his way to Jerusalem, and, and as we see in verse 9, he has the, uh, the blessing of the king. He's arrived on official business uh, from the king, and he has actually a number of resources that the king has given for the rebuilding of the wall. Now, l- let's look at a few things from the text. Let's start in verses 11 through 15. We're not going to read all of this stuff. I know you guys are like thrilled by Valley Gate talk and Dragon Spring talk, um, but I want to note a couple of things about what Nehemiah does um, and how he does it. So what he does is he makes note of all of these different features, um, and he notes Time and again that the wall had been torn down, that the gates were burned. Gates were, of course, uh, sort of the the center of civic life. That's where official judgments were given. Um, That's where trials were often often held. And so I want you to put yourself in Nehemiah's shoes. He's returned from Babylon, and he is tasked with rebuilding the wall. And everywhere he looks, he starts in the western part— by the valley gate, he goes down south to the dung gate, he goes up to the east by the valley, and he doubles back. And everywhere he looks, what he sees is destruction. When we talk about the reality that Nehemiah is stepping into, he sees destructed thing after destructed thing. And then he gets to a point in verse 14 that's really important to note. He says, I went on to the fountain gate into the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Now, if you read about this in the commentaries, one of the things that they'll note is what Nehemiah comes to at this point where he cannot move forward with his animal is likely the place where Nebuchadnezzar had formed the initial breach in the wall that led to the downfall of the Judean people. And so as Nehemiah surveys the land, he's not only surveying a broken city, a city that lies in shambles, he's also surveying effectively what stands as a representative of a broken people. He views the spot where Nebuchadnezzar, under God's hand of discipline, had come to exercise discipline over the Israelite people for breaking covenant. Now, where do we get that? If you go back to chapter 1 in Nehemiah's initial prayer, he, he, he prays God's words back to God. And Jeff made a note of this a few weeks ago. Effectively, what he does is he remembers what God says in Deuteronomy 30, 
where God promises after Israel had been taken into exile, they would be returned to the land. He prays that to God, but the reality of that prayer is it's predicated upon the fact and the reality that a return to the land from exile means that something had to happen first, and that thing is what? Exile. Punishment. And the reason why there was punishment in exile is because in Deuteronomy 28, God set forward for Israel, if you keep my covenant, you will receive these blessings. If you don't, you will receive these cursings. And sort of the end point of those cursings was being conquered by a foreign people and taken into exile. So putting yourself in Nehemiah's shoes here, when he comes upon this broken rubble, he's not just witnessing the defeat of a political entity. He's witnessing what is effectively the, the, the disintegration of the people of Israel as it related to their spiritual life and their spiritual health. So when we talk about the reality that Nehemiah was in, it was a difficult reality. He was tasked with rebuilding the walls, and yes, that's difficult, but as anyone knows who's worked with people or just been involved with people, it's, it's a little bit easier to put like one of those metal sheds up in your background than it is to walk with people through some really, really, really tough stuff spiritually, Right? The thing about Nehemiah's difficulty, though, is that it wasn't just Nehemiah versus his environment or Nehemiah with the people. Nehemiah experienced some real opposition to the work of God. There were people who, they did not love the things of God, and they were opposed to the things of God precisely because they were the things of God. Look at verse 10. Now, bear in mind, verse 9 comes before it, and we learn from verse 9 that when Nehemiah arrived, he arrived with this big cohort from the king. And in verse 10, it says, When Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So right from the jump in our passage, we see that pretty quickly after Nehemiah arrives, he is faced with opposition in the task that God would have him do. Now notice how these people go about their opposition. Verse 19, right? Same people, Sanballat and company. It says, uh, when Sambalat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshub the Arab heard of it, what did they hear of? The, the resolve to, to rebuild the city, to rebuild the walls. It says, they jeered at us and they despised us and said, what's this thing that you're doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Now notice that last question. Are you rebelling against the king? These people were present whenever Nehemiah arrived. And if they weren't present, they at least knew how he arrived with a royal envoy, with the full blessing of the king. And we know from the previous verses that he had come not only with the blessing of the king, but with some of the king's own resources to rebuild the city. And yet these people, even though they knew this reality, it was, they, they, were not, they were not concerned with whether or not they, um, they fell in line with the truth. They were completely all right with deceiving, because the very line of questioning that they ask of the people, are you rebelling against the king? They knew full well what the king had said. They knew what he had ordered. They knew what he had blessed. They just didn't care. They were opposed to God's work through Nehemiah. So the reality of Nehemiah's story as it related to God's greater story is not just that he was entering into something difficult, but that the nature of his difficulty was in part opposition. And this, this says something to us about our own stories. Our stories, our role in God's story will entail difficulty 
and opposition. Our role in God's story will entail difficulty and opposition. Now, this doesn't mean that uh, every single time you step out your door, that things are hard. It, it doesn't mean that we need to adopt a sort of martyr complex where everyone's out to get us, all right? If, if, if for no other reason than if you would like to just have friends, like in general. But it does mean that in the words that we read earlier from Jesus, that there will be people who they do not love God nor the things of God. And in order for us to be prepared, we need to understand the reality of what it means to follow Christ. In this world, you will have tribulations, Jesus said. And specifically in that context, the tribulations come as the result of people being opposed to Christ. Christ earlier in that same passage said, servant's not greater than his master. If they, if they hated me, they will hate you as well. It's important that we understand the reality of what it means to follow Jesus. And even Jesus' words when he says, take up your cross and follow me. When Jesus took up his cross, that certainly was difficult, but let's not forget that there were Roman soldiers around him. He faced opposition. See, the reality is that there will be difficulty in oppositions as we try and integrate our stories into God's greater story. But the good news in the midst of that is almost all of the things in life that we do that are the best things entail some level of difficulty. Getting married and staying married, that's, that can be difficult, right? It can be difficult when you get two sinful people together. But it's still one of the best things that we do. Raising children, also difficult. One of the best things that we do. Making a career change because we feel like the Lord is pushing us in a certain direction. That will oftentimes face difficulty and opposition. Why in the world are you doing this? Still one of the best things that we can do sometimes. Finishing a degree, starting a degree. All of the best things in life require some level of difficulty to them. The question becomes, how will we respond when we are faced with difficulty and opposition? That's where all the money's made. Now let's look at what Nehemiah does, right? Back to 11 through 15. Once again, he takes this assessment. He notes all of these things specifically. Nehemiah, as he goes around, he wants to get a lay of the land. He notes what is torn down, what has been burned with fire. And then as he makes this assessment, as he gives this honest assessment, look at how he, how he, um, how he addresses the people in verse 17. Verse 17 says, Then I said to them, You see the trouble that we are in. How Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Now that phrase, Jerusalem, or the walls lying in ruins and the gates being burned, that's repeated over and over and over again. Nehemiah is making a point. God is making a point through his word. Things are not good. And when Nehemiah talks to the people, the very first thing that he does is he doesn't say, Hey man, dung gate's looking really great today. Lots of really great, lots, it's amazing out there. No, he's honest. He says, hey, things are not good. This city is torn down. It is not a good situation. And it's not just that this physical city is in a bad way. Look at the end of verse 17. When he calls them to build the wall of Jerusalem, he gives a reason why, that we may no longer suffer derision. It's not just that the city was in a bad way. The people were in a bad way. Because Nehemiah's task, again, was not just to rebuild a wall, but to help rebuild a people, a people who had gotten into a bad way by virtue of their own choices, and they needed to turn back to the Lord. Nehemiah gives an honest assessment of the difficulty and opposition that he's facing. But there's another thing that he does in verse 17. He doesn't just say it's bad. 
He gives them a clear call to action. He gives them a, 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 something to, to be resolute in. Verse 17, come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem. Nehemiah demonstrates that not only is he, is he willing to look at the, his problem square in the eye, but he also calls people clearly and plainly to a bold course of action. There's something else, though, in verse 20 that demonstrates that this wasn't just with an eye towards uh, a physical wall or a physical city. Look at verse 20. And this may have struck you as an odd way to say this because in our culture we tend to value um, acceptance and inclusion and all of these things. Look at verse 20. The God of heaven will make us prosper. So this is Nehemiah responding to the people that are opposed to him. The God of heaven will make us prosper and we his servants will arise and build, but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. And you read that and you're like, Nehemiah, man, bro, you gotta like, you gotta relax. Take a vacation. Now, we might could understand that uh, because he's responding to some adversaries, but this is almost the same reply that happened in the book of Ezra. And this is a really important point. Nehemiah is not a book unto itself. It's actually the second part of a, of a bigger work. And it's Ezra Nehemiah. In the Hebrew Bible, it's Ezra Nehemiah as a whole. And so whenever you read Nehemiah, the author of Nehemiah, ultimately God, but uh, likely both a combination of Ezra and Nehemiah, they are assuming that we know what has happened in the book of Ezra first. And in Ezra chapter 4, one of the things that we note uh, is if, if this sounded a little harsh, as, as the people were rebuilding the temple, right? Ezra is concerned with rebuilding the temple. As the people are rebuilding the temple, uh, there's a group of people, they have, have come back from exile from Assyria, and they walk up and they say, hey, Zerubbabel, we would love to help you rebuild this temple. We love the Lord. We love Yahweh. And they turn to this, to this, this group of people from Israel, and they say, we're not going to let you help us. You can't play with us. And we read that, and we think, man, Judeans are a bunch of jerks. What's wrong with you? They want to help. What's the problem? In the book of 2 Kings, one of the things that we learn about the group that returned from Assyria, we learn it from chapter 17, I encourage you to read verses 21 through 41 on your own time, but specifically I think it's verse 32. When the people returned from captivity, it says, they worshiped the Lord, but they also served their carved idols. They worshiped the Lord, but they also served their carved idols. This group of people was the group of people present in Ezra. And by extension, Sam Ballot serves as a stand-in and a representative of these same types of people. And so what Nehemiah is doing whenever he puts his foot down is he's not just saying, you can't, just come, you can't help, we don't want you. What he's saying is, the thing that you want to do is you want us to compromise on what God has clearly revealed in his word about worshiping him. You guys want to have your cake and eat it too. You guys are syncretists. You want to have a religious fruit salad. You want to mix God with Molech and Asherah. Right? The equivalent today would be something like we want to mix Jesus with karma or Jesus with the eightfold path or Jesus with some rubbing some crystals together. That would never happen in East Dallas, right? Right? And what Nehemiah says is the whole reason that we're in this mess in the first place is because we wanted not to worship God on his own terms, but on our own terms, which is to say, we wanted to worship ourselves. 
And he's learned his lesson. And what he teaches us is that in the face of difficulty and opposition, Nehemiah had an honest assessment of what was going on, and he had a firm resolve. And that's likewise what we're called to do. Our role in God's story will require honest assessment and firm resolve in the face of difficulty and opposition. Our role in God's story will require honest assessment and firm resolve in the face of difficulty and opposition. One of the things that Jeff brought out last week about Nehemiah is a point that I love. Nehemiah wasn't like this expertly trained theological guru, right? He, he was a cupbearer, which meant that he had a high, high station in the Persian Empire, but he didn't have like a PhD in biblical studies or a THM or an MDiv. Honestly, that might have served him better, right? He was just a guy who knew God's word. He knew what God had revealed And he knew what God had revealed in the most fundamental sense. And when he responded to this group, he did so not as someone with expertise, but as someone who just loved the Lord and his word and had a little bit of gumption, a little bit of chutzpah, as our Jewish friends would say. He knew God's word and he remained resolute. He knew what God had revealed and he remained resolute because these people, they, they, didn't, they didn't want to know, like, they didn't want to have a debate on who the emperor was during the time, you know, who the emperor of the Caledonians was during the reign of David. They just wanted him to compromise on commandments one and two. I think for us, a lot of times we tend to think that the nature of remaining resolute in the face of opposition and difficulty means that we have to have some form of specialized theological training. And we need to know the truth. But the nature, I think, of a, lot of, the t- of a lot of the encounters in which we need to remain firm in the face of opposition is not going to be some specialized knowledge, but it's going to be just these basic things. When I was in seminary, there was a guy that I knew. I'd met at a coffee shop. We had we'd gone to drum major camp together, right? It's incredible, right? Drum major camp. That's, that's tough for high school, let me tell you. We had, I'd, I'd seen him, I was like, I, I remember you. And anyways, turns out he was going to seminary at the same time, different seminary, and a seminary that was, you know, pretty compromised on a number of things. Although the one thing that they weren't compromised on, which was good, was most of them believed, at least, that you needed to believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus. And so this guy was really struggling. Um, he was training to be a pastor, and he was really struggling with one of the things that his professors wanted him to sign. And the thing that they wanted him to sign was that he believed in the bodily resurrection of Jesus. And he didn't. And he was going to be a pastor. And I remember having a conversation with him over the course of weeks and months. Uh, trust me, I didn't go full bore in on like day two. I know it's shocking to some people. Um, but over the course of months, one of the things that I, I was able to ask him was, hey, you, you say you want to be a pastor. Like, why do you, why do you want to be a pastor? Why, I want to affect social change. I, want to, I like being in front of people, speaking in front of people. And, and I said, you know, um, one of the things, like, in order for you to be a Christian pastor is, like, you have to be a Christian. And in order for you to be a Christian, you have to believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus. And so, like, you know, you can do these other things, but you aren't going to be able to like maintain your integrity if you sign on to something that you quite obviously don't, don't believe in. 
Um, and I wish I could say we had some like Damascus Road experience, but the reason why I bring that up is because I think that's kind of the nature of what remaining firm looks like. That's not like any, any single person in this congregation, if you ask them, do you have to believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus? You would say, yes, and you would be right. But I think the nature you know, of, of remaining faithful to the gospel and being resolved in the face of opposition to the truth is going to come down to things like that. It's not going to be, can you detail the finer points of superlapsarianism? I don't even know what that means. But it's going to be, do you, do you hold fast to the resurrection? Do you believe that Jesus is the only way, truth, and the life? Do you believe that when he commands us to do things ethically that he means what he says? And are you willing to go to bat for it? Are you willing to know the truth and have just a little bit of gumption? You don't have to be nasty about it, but you do have to say the truth. The reality is, though, that's our response. For every conversation that I have like that, where I feel like, okay, I think I did a decent job, I have four where I'm like, okay, man, just, it's a good thing repentance is a valid category. Um, We're not springs of, like, moral resolve unto ourselves. We're not... We're not able to just white-knuckle these things. We're not able to just do this because we ourselves are special and, and good and powerful and right and true. No, we're filled with sin, right? We know this. So what was it that sustained Nehemiah and allowed him to remain, to be honest about what was going on and to remain resolved? Verse 12, it says, I arose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. Verse 18, I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good. Verse 20, and I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper. Time and again, at each step of the way, we find that the genesis of Nehemiah's actions, they didn't come from Nehemiah being some really just strong guy. They came from the Lord, right? It was his good hand. He was his source. He was his power. He, he was the genesis of his resolve. And so it is with us. See, our our role in God's story, it doesn't just mean that we have to have honest assessment and firm resolve. It also means that we have to remember something fundamental about it. Our role in God's story means we remember that it ultimately is God's story. It's ultimately God's story. Nehemiah knew that he was well in line with God's story because he knew the promise of God that he was going to return his people to the land. He knew that Jerusalem needed the wall to be rebuilt. And for four months, he prayed and fasted seeking God's will. He didn't just stumble into it. That's how he knew that he was in line with God. And, 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 and knowing how we fit into God's story, in our own particular stories, that's a different sermon for a different day. But once we have that figured out, and we can, at some point it requires just a little bit of gumption of us, but it, most importantly, it requires that we remember that it is ultimately God's story. That he is our genesis. So what's the call to action? I think the call to action is, is pretty simple. It's, it's don't fold. Take heart. There are going to be things that we, we're tempted to fold on. A lot. Every day. And there will be times in which we do fold and we have repentance for that. But the call, the call is to don't fold. Take heart.
The reality is that we're going to face difficulties. We're going to face opposition. The call is to be honest about those things. It's to remain resolute. It's to remember that God is the one who stands behind us as we are standing up for the truth. And so don't fold. Take heart. In what way? Well, maybe, maybe we just need to do the preparatory work of Nehemiah. Maybe we need to spend some time in prayer, some time in fasting, asking, Lord, where are we tempted to compromise? Where are we temp- tempted to compromise? Maybe we're temp- tempted to compromise as the syncretists were, as those people who had returned from Assyria. They, they wanted to have, you know, worship of the Lord, but also worship of their idols. And maybe that's where we're tempted. Maybe in our environments, it's, it's this post-Christian mush of anything goes, and you can mix Jesus with X, Y, and Z, and it's so corrupted that by the end, you just, you're not really believing in anything. Maybe it's, maybe we need to spend some time in prayer asking God, are we tempted in that, are we tempted in that area? Can you give us, can you give me resolve? Can you give me a clear-eyed view? Maybe we're tempted to, to compromise in the realm of ethics, whether they be sexual or just truth-telling. or Once again, the list goes on. I say this not as someone who is, who is himself like this iron man of like uh, moral purity and how great I am. I say this because I understand the pressure that we all feel in those moments when your face gets red and you start to sweat and you think, all right, which friendship am I going to lose right now? But the truth is still the truth, and God is still God. And if we remember that ultimately it's his story that we fit into, we'll be okay. I want you to remember the words of Jesus as he was on the cross, in which he certainly faced some opposition and certainly had a difficult time. His last words, into your hands I commit my spirit, they actually come from Psalm 31. And I want these words to close out today. And I want you to see, as Jesus is quoting Psalm 31, what he's actually saying in addition to, into your hands, Father, I commit my spirit. He says, you are my rock and my fortress. And for your namesake, you lead me and guide me. You take me out of the net that they have hidden for me. For you are my refuge. Into your hand, I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. Let's pray. God, we thank you for today. Allow us not to fold in the midst of difficulty and opposition, but to take heart. God, we say these things not as people um, who are, are resolute in and of ourselves or people who are perfectly pure or perfectly holy. God, we acknowledge that that's the whole point of the gospel is that we are not those things, but we, we desperately need you. We need you in a number of ways. We need you to cleanse us from our unrighteousness and we need you to provide the strength for us to remain firm in the truth that you have revealed um, and to do so for your glory. Apart from you, we have no good thing. Help us to love you more. We give glory to your name. It's your name that we pray. Amen.